so that's where data uh, should and, and is playing a huge part in any kind of catastrophic event because you know, as we get to identify the early indicators of growing hotspots, for example, in a pandemic, you can start to change travel advisory dynamically. And once we're capturing all of the information on evolving cases in a certain area, you can very quickly apply CDC resources or other resources as applicable. Um, so data has to play a huge part. It's not the only uh, solution, of course, because there's a, a you know, hell of a lot of other factors that come into play, but data and this whole concept of being able to weave the real-time streaming data that could be coming from the WHO or various other research institutes and government bodies together with data associated with, you know, what are the resources we have available to us and then mapping that to location is hugely critical in an environment like that. Hi, thanks for being curious and welcome to M4 Edge, the podcast about startups with technology that's changing how our economy functions. I'm Michael Leifman. And on today's episode, Marco and I speak with Paul Appleby, the CEO of Kinetica. Paul has held leadership roles in some very prominent tech companies, including SAP, Salesforce, and C3, and he's now at the helm of a big data startup, so he's definitely been at the center of our changing economy and has a lot to reflect upon. We recorded our interview with Paul in early March of 2020, but we delayed the release a bit because we wanted to give room for some of our M4 Corona Combatants mini-episodes to get some airtime and some of your mind share. If you've not checked those out, please do. Of course, as you heard in the teaser quote at the top of the episode, and as you'll hear in the interview, Kinetica's power and its platform can certainly be applied to many of the problems at hand in battling the coronavirus. Kinetica's strength is its ability to take massive amounts of structured and unstructured data from diverse sources and do the analytics in real time. Kinetica offers a glimpse into some of the imagined capability we've seen in movies for years, whether it's analyzing banking transactions on the fly or the millions of pieces of real-time data flow from a fully automated traffic system to tracking the unfolding of a pandemic. As Paul says, they are at the crossroads of data, business, and AI, and it's an exciting place to be. You'll see that this is a classic M4 Edge conversation. We cover a lot of ground from pandemics to terror threats to banking to dynamic supply chains, but also to what all of this means for the future of work. We know you're a curious lot, but even for us, this conversation really traversed a lot of ground. So buckle up. Before we dive in, I wanted to give a quick shout out to some recent reviewers, including SBTSP, who said, great topics. Thanks. We're glad you liked them too. And also, O-O-N-A-B-P, boy, these are hard to say, people, O-O-N-A-B-P wrote, great podcast, so thank you. And also thanks to Lorraine Ball, who's the host of the More Than a Few Words podcast. So if you're a fan of M4 Edge, please, please, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. And please, please, please share an episode of the show or the show links with a friend or share it on social media. And help us build our community of curious listeners. Okay, with that, stay curious and stay safe. Here's Paul Appleby. Paul Appleby of Kinetica, welcome to M4 Edge. 
Hey, I'm really excited to be here. Really looking forward to the conversation today as well. Paul, welcome. And we'll kick this off with our usual, very polite heart icebreaker, not heartbreaker, but icebreaker. <laughs> Don't go breaking my heart. No, no. <laughs> Which is, uh, why on earth are you doing this? What problem does Kinetica solve? You know, it was uh, so funny. A lot of my friends asked me this, uh, the very same thing is, is why I'd gone from running um, you know, some very large technology companies to joining a, a Series A startup. And, and it actually came down to uh, one meeting. Um, I met with the company's earliest investor, Ray Lane, uh, who used to be president of Oracle. And he, he called me and said, listen, I want some help with this company. I think it's kind of cool. Um, and I'd really like your insights. And, you know, what Ray shared with me about Kinetica, where it came from and the problems that it solved, um, really caught my eye because I'd been looking for a, a long time for a company that sat at the cost crossroads of you know, data, business, and AI. And in Connecticut, that's what I found. I saw a company that could really scale. So that's what got me excited. But uh, um, it took a lot of my friends by surprise. They thought I'd gone crazy. And so what, what about Connecticut excited you? What, what are the problems that Connecticut is trying to solve that you said to yourself, this is where I make my next career move. Yeah, well, I mean, without diving deep into the technology um, or the use cases, where I'd start is to say that, you know, I've had the benefit of, of running some large technology companies and through that meeting with the leaders of many of the large, world's largest corporations, um, I, I was able to attend the World Economic Forum, um, I think it was six years running in Davos. And there was a consistent theme that evolved in those conversations you know, everybody puts a different label on it. You know, the industry 4.0 or the fourth industrial revolution, um, digital transformation, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter which label we put on it. We can, we, can I, play, we can play buzzwords for a long time. We can play buzzwords all day long. But you know what I came down to is a fundamental realization that each and every one of those things was, was really talking about organizations, governments, and societies taking data and leveraging leveraging it in a totally new way. Um, not putting it into giant swamps and, and driving some sort of insight out of it, but actually looking at data as a perishable asset and the ability to actually ingest these huge streams of events that might be occurring from wearables, from medical devices, from motor cars, from smart grids or smart cities, to be able to consume that data, interpret it, learn from it and respond to it dynamically. And that's what Kinetica was built for. And I went, wow, there isn't a tech on the planet that can actually do it. A lot of tech talks about they want to do it, but they can't. And Kinetica was a technology that could because it was born out of solving exactly that problem. We, we're going to get back to what Kinetica does. And I, I love that you call it a data swamp. I know a lot of companies talk about a data lake, but you're right. They don't know what's in it. It's just murky. And so we're going to talk about how Kinetica transforms those swamps into into fishable lakes. Yeah. Um, but, but, <laughs> well, I mean, Jensen Huang calls it dark data. And, and, you know, we're trying to bring the data into the light. And, uh, and we'll talk about that later because, you know, that's where AI comes into it and how you kind of smash artificial intelligence and, and machine learning up against business data to drive these true digital transformations. Right, right. But, you, you know, you mentioned a couple of times uh, that you've worked for other companies and these are not, um, um, you know, fly-by-night operations. So you were a top exec at SAP and at Salesforce. Um, you've been an investor. So tell us 
a little bit about your journey. I mean, so you you went from these humongous companies to uh, to a startup. Tell us about your your career journey a little bit. We don't often have guests with the kind of career you've had. Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting background because I've had a combination of experiences with the likes of. Uh, of SAP and Stable and Salesforce. Seems like I got stuck with companies that start with S for some reason, but uh, they were also huge enterprise software companies. And, and my focus there was really in working with organizations that were solving the, the biggest challenges for business at the time. If you think about where SAP was at back in the 90s, it was about transforming the supply side of the business. How do we actually use technology to automate and transform supply chains and, and manufacturing processes. With, um, you know, with Siebel and Salesforce, of course, it was the other side of the equation. How do we transform the buy side of the equation and, and, and build closer and more dynamic and intimate relationships with our customers and grow and scale revenue? Um, so they're really interesting journeys. But along the way, I've had a bit of fun as well in, uh, in uh, uh, you know, running a couple of startups. I took a small B2C company public back in Australia, back uh, just before the, the beautiful explosion of, uh, of .com, um, which was a journey. We could have a conversation about that in and of itself. But uh, I also helped Tom Siebel start his, uh, his new company, C3. Oh, really? Um, it was a great experience as well. So, yeah, I've had the benefit of big and small. Um, and, you know, as a consequence, you know, I kind of um, love the idea of bringing a young, innovative company with all of the benefits of of that kind of disruptive technology, but bringing that to um, you know some of the world's largest companies as uh, as customers. That's a very impressive background, Paul. It also speaks to how clearly you have seen the challenges that companies, big and small, face, and therefore the priority of coming up with new technology solutions to address those challenges. We'll devote a lot of our podcast to this, but let's dip our feet into the technology now. So you guys are leveraging the computing power of both central processing units and graphics processing units. Yes. Tell us a little bit about this, how you do it, and why is it so important to your solutions? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because it speaks to the genesis of the company. Um, uh, we, uh, uh, the company was founded out of a research project in um, US intelligence. And, and that U.S. intelligence project was, was really aimed at doing what uh, Hollywood believe, would believe that we solved many years ago, which is consuming vast amounts of structured and unstructured data. You would imagine all of the data that uh, the intel agencies have access to from, from satellite imagery to drone footage to mobile, mobile data, social media data, et cetera, et cetera. But um, taking those vast volumes of data running those uh, streaming data sets up against historic data, analyzing that data in the context of location and, and running complex models to identify patterns of behavior that could uh, predict uh, risk of, of catastrophic um, events. And the challenge that that research project came across was, was a combination of things. First of all, you had to bring multiple disciplines together, streaming, historic location, AI and ML onto a single platform. So to build those data pipelines and bring all of those disparate capabilities together in and of itself was a challenge. And then when you talk about the vast amounts of data and the complexity of the computation associated with the analytics, um, your know, compute really needed to be treated as an abundant resource. So their concept was, what if you built a converged platform 
that combine this kind of converged analytic capability of those four elements that leverage the power of computers and abundant resource and push workloads to CPU or GPU, depending on the nature of the workload. Um, and hence, you know, the whole construct of Kinetic was born. Can you give us, you know, you, you, you talked about uh, location, um, intelligence. Um, what is, is that? Is that something other than lat long coordinates? Is it um, movement of elements through, yeah. through space? What, what does it actually mean? And I don't know, maybe give an example of, of how all these different elements, location intelligence, data, streaming analytics, AI, how does it all come together? What's an example of, so we can yeah. get, get a little more uh, tangible? Well, that example that I gave you is, is a great example because they were attempting to identify terror threats in real time. Okay. Um, and, and where that potential threat is is as important as identifying the when and the who, or, um, of course, because if you're going to uh, you know, have some strategy for remediation, uh, you, uh, you obviously uh, um, need to know where that's occurring. So the, you know, this is the whole evolution of the concept of GIS. If you think about GIS historically, this was a relatively static thing where we mapped out grids or networks and we could manage the huge amount of data associated with a telco network or a utility network. In the world where we're in today of autonomous vehicles, um, in, in the world of, of the, the spread, for example, of a pandemic, um, in the, you know, on a less topical thing in the world where we're talking about true customer 360 and next best offer, Understanding the concept uh, or construct of location and event is absolutely crucial in so many different applications and use cases. So correlating data in the context of event, particularly when um, objects are moving through space, whether that's cars or humans or aircraft um, or, or the spread of a pandemic, um, those sorts of things are critical. And there's a real time dimension to that. We don't want to have uh, a report on what the spread of a pandemic was a month ago. We'd like to know what's happening today so we can develop remediation strategies and containment strategies. So for our, our listeners, we are recording this um, in the beginning of March, 2020, and the coronavirus is um, unfortunately spreading across the United States after it's already spread through much of Asia and, uh, and Europe. And so this is very, very topical. And I'm wondering, um, Paul, if, if actually you guys are, are deploying the solution now to help, I, I don't know, CDC or WHO, is that something that Connecticut is being used for right now? Yeah, I, I, I don't want to get ahead of, of any work that we might be doing. But, uh, but what I would say is that if, if you think of any catastrophic event, um, you know, it might be something like a hurricane event or, uh, you know, some other weather event or, or in fact, an attack on public infrastructure or a health event. Um, you know, there's no shortage of resources that the government has to hand in, you know, applying to, you know, helping assist communities that have been um, uh, impacted. The challenge that governments have always had is having the right data to either predict and get ahead of these events so you can get people out of harm's way, or to in fact apply the right resources to the right locations at the right time. Um, so that's where data uh, should and, and is playing a huge part um, in any kind of catastrophic event because you know, as we get to identify the early indicators of growing hotspots, for example, in a pandemic, 
you can start to change travel advisory dynamically. We're not doing travel advisories retrospectively, we're doing it dynamically. And once we're capturing all of the information on, you know, uh, you know, evolving cases in a certain area, you can very quickly apply, you know, city city resources or other resources as applicable. Um, so data has to play a huge part. It's not the only uh, solution, of course, because there's a, a you know, hell of a lot of other factors that come into play, but uh, data and this whole concept of being able to weave the real-time streaming data that could be coming from the WHO or various other research institutes and government bodies together with, you know, data associated with, you know, what other resources we have available to us um, and then mapping that to location um, is hugely critical in an environment like that. So, Paul, you, we're talking a lot about uh, location intelligence in this context. So the yes. geographical aspect has been crucial. And I'm curious, uh, is it because uh, you are layering a geographical dimension over several other aspects of the situation? So you increase the complexity from a, a data perspective and therefore have a need for much stronger computation capacity? Or is there something specific about uh, location information which makes it particularly challenging? Um, the answer is yes to both, um, because now, you know, we don't have static location data. We've got, you know, dynamic location data. If you think about an autonomous vehicle use case, as an example, or even the, the data associated with the pandemic, that, that data is streaming in constantly and that picture is dynamically changing. So it's not a static picture, it's a dynamic picture. Um, the other thing is it sort of comes to the, the construct that, that we spoke about before the podcast uh, Marco, of, of bringing AI and business data together. This is out about bringing AI, other sources of data and location together in a single environment. So it's layering on these multiple disciplines to solve these complex use cases. And you know, a great case in point is, is you know, totally unrelated to the ones we've talked about so far is in the telecommunications world. Every telco on the planet's looking at their 5G uh, rollout. Now, you know, for those of us who know a little bit about 5G, we know the propagation models are totally different to 4G. So how do we take the 10, 15 billion dollars we've got set aside to roll out, you know, our 5G network in the US? It's a huge geospatial computational challenge because you have to layer all of the traffic data. You have to layer that over a 5G um, propagation model and then layer over that a 3D model of every one of the cities that we're going to deploy our 5G infrastructure in. Yeah, we worked with a telco recently who was trying to do this and they calculated just for the state of California with their existing tech, it would take five years of compute runtime to build a single model. Now we did it in 50 minutes in a POC. So you know, we're, we're pretty excited about what we're able to do there. So, but it's, uh, you know, it's not just about geospatial and we can talk about some other use cases later, you know, in things like the, the healthcare industry where we're actually using data to help, um, you know, the rapid um, development and deployment of, of new medicines, uh, leveraging uh, huge data sets, we're working with a, a GSK in fact, on a trillion row data set um, targeted at, uh, uh, a new uh, cancer treatment. Well, that's excellent, not least because it's it's a welcome change of pace. I was worried we were going to get stuck in disaster mode for too long. <laughs> <laughs> because Michael has a bit of a dystopian uh, twist to his mind, so we have to be careful on this. Although but, uh, we went from pandemic and design disaster to cancer, so I, you know. 
I like that. Slower well, death, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, we should we should lighten things up though. But I think the whole idea of bringing new and more effective medicines to market faster is a pretty yeah. cool thing, and that's yeah. what that's what this sort of access to this data is doing, which is really cool. Absolutely. And on this note, Paul, tell us a little bit more about uh, the profile of your customer base, uh, your typical clients. Uh. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to actually put them in, into a, a single uh, basket, Marco, because um, you, there's almost not an industry on the planet that hasn't been affected by these kinds of transformational changes we're talking about. Everybody's talking about digital transformation. It doesn't matter if you're a retailer, a telco, an automotive you know, company, a utility or whatever the case may be. So, you know, there's hugely broad applicability of our technology. So what we focused on doing is looking at each industry and targeting those business problems that represent the highest value to those companies um, uh, and where you know, our technology sits at the crossroads. So, so for telcos, no surprise, this whole idea of, of modeling 5G rollout is a great case in point. For, for healthcare companies, it's accelerating drug discovery. That's the holy grail for healthcare. healthcare. I mean, uh, you know, it takes on average seven to eight years and a billion dollars to bring a new medicine to market. And most you know, drug, new drug programs actually fail. So if you can improve those hit rates and bring new medicines to market faster, that's cool. But we're also working with, wow, now it's four of the world's largest auto manufacturers on making um, you know, autonomous, autonomous driving a reality because what they've all realized is that making the vehicle autonomous in and of itself is actually a relatively straightforward problem to solve. I say relatively because you're smiling and I, you know, although the listeners can't see that, but um, yeah, the challenge then is how to do those, you know, very successfully autonomously driven vehicles navigate their way through hundreds of thousands of other autonomous vehicles and through a cityscape and public infrastructure. And this is ultimately about, our data and analytics and it's it, it it's sort of woven into the fabric of, of 5g and also the whole idea of pushing you know uh, analytics and ai out to the edge and in fact into the motor car itself so and we're doing that with as i said for the biggest manufacturers on the planet so really highly targeted not just as some sort of horizontal use case but very much focused on what are the biggest problems in these industries? In banking, it's things like real-time risk, AML, which is a huge issue, anti-money laundering around the world, and fraud. So you know, um, it's industry by industry targeting some of the world's biggest problems around data. Because that's, you know, that's what got me excited about the company. Everybody talks about real-time. Everybody talks about data as the new oil, and you know, we're going to monetize data as an asset and all that kind of stuff. How many people were doing it? I'll give you one example, smart grid. I've, I've been involved in working with the utility sector for a long time. I, I, I did my own research. I'm not saying it's exhaustive research, but the earliest mention of smart grid I could find was 19 years ago. And so far, smart grid, all smart grids really achieved is putting a whole bunch of meter readers out of a job. Uh, and, and, the, and the thing is we're collecting all that data now. We have all this telemetry, it's amazing. We're not really doing anything with it. So Kinetica is the company that's doing stuff with that data and making it real for companies. So this is, this is a great uh, segue, actually. So there's some, arguably some structural reasons why the utilities haven't taken advantage, uh, uh, taken enough advantage of smart grid or smart grid-like solutions. Um, I think it's uneven, right? There's some utilities that are 
yeah, yeah. pretty good job of it. To but be fair, yes. To, to be fair. Um, but as you said, there are other companies, the automotive industry, the uh, pharmaceutical industry, they're jumping, and telco, obviously, they're jumping on the stuff a little bit more. Um, so there's some, arguably, there's some, uh, you know, again, industry structure and maybe some um, industry personality uh, types um, that determine whether or not a company or an industry really digs into its data. I, I'm wondering if there's another another element, which is that for you, for Kinetic, it seems that it shines most when there's a really dense data problem, the swamp you mentioned, right? So, mm -hmm. or the the density of data in autonomous driving, it's not just at the car, but it's all of the communications car to car, uh, V2V as they like to call it, or mm -hmm. uh, vehicle to, uh, to infrastructure to I, mm -hmm. right? There's just a lot there that people don't automatically think about, but it's dense is the main issue. Mm. Are there some, are there some industries for which or some problems for which actually it's not that dense and maybe um the the idea of combining lots of data isn't needed and it's just sort of you know you only need to go one level down you don't need to go the 10 levels down are there are there industries where there's a sort of a solvable problem that's not being solved um yeah it's it's more you know yes density of data is is an issue and yes location is an issue but they're not the only challenges it, it's where you have a combination of disciplines that need to come together even even if it's not a, a huge data set hmm. that the the challenges lie um and and we're working in many instances you know with environments where the data sets aren't exactly massive but where you need to bring multiple disciplines together with this kind of dynamic response, we need to ingest the, the data, data feed. We need to, you know, interpret and run analytics as it's being ingested, which is, I mean, most technologies just die right there because the ability to actually process the analytic as the data is streaming into the database is in and of itself a, a challenge for 99.9% .9 of technologies on the planet. But when you bring a combination together, so let's say we're working with a whole bunch of ad tech companies, not of, huge of amounts of, of ed, that, ed, ad, ad, ad tech, yeah, ad, okay. not, not ed tech, ad, ad tech, advertising. Sorry, oh, advertising, the, okay. Yeah, my Australian apologies. Accent, That's yeah. the Australian accent. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, uh, American isn't my first language. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> it's Australian. Um, <laughs> But not huge amounts of data, but there's a dynamic associated with that because if somebody's in a shopping mall and you want to push an offer to them, you need to push an offer to them while they're in that location and you need to be able to, have been able to run a model against that. So, so there are, it's, it's more about where there's a combination of dynamics that come together. Now, it just so happens in many of those instances, there's also a lot of data, but not always. That's excellent. And actually, it's, it's a good point to start moving towards the business intelligent aspect of uh, our discussion. Something I was curious about, uh, so you, we talked about the challenges, the data challenges, uh, the locational aspect of the data, the real-time aspect of the data, and we talked about uh, the technological solutions that Kinetica offers. Now, what I'm curious about, Paul, is uh, let's talk about how companies can take these solutions on board. So, in particular, starting off with what kind of capabilities does a company need to have in-house already? How do you guys come in? What is the process? If I'm your customer and I say, this is the problem I have, help me solve it. How does the relationship evolve? Yeah, um, well, that really good question. And, and one of the things we are hugely focused on is that in this world of dynamic change, if you're talking about bringing essentially a toolkit into a company, 
that requires 200 forward deployed engineers and 18 months or 24 months to do a project, you're just completely out of step with reality. So a big part of our focus as we came to market was not only to produce this incredibly disruptive and innovative technology, but to create an form factor that was, you know, easy to address for the developer class, for the creator class. So it, it presents itself as a relational database, fully SQL, anti-SQL compliant, um, with, uh, you know, a, an architecture built around open APIs. So, um, you know, somebody with a, you know, a good basic understanding of relational database and, and development can take Kinetica as a platform and start building these modern data-driven apps. So, you know, give you a, to give you an example, we're working with many of the world's largest banks, many of the world's largest telcos, government departments, retailers, et cetera, et cetera. The average time from a, you know, commencement of a project to full production, and I'm talking about mega scale production running you know, parts of the supply chain for one of the world's biggest retailers is around four months. So you know, the, this is a, you know, a really modern platform that presents itself as a really easy to access developer tool that um, you don't need to bring uh, you know, a totally new skill set into the company. You don't need to find those five people that know how to develop uh, you know, or write code in, a, you know, in some arcane language. Um, it actually presents, and, and as a consequence, once our customers deploy Kinetica and solve you know, a high profile problem, we end up with an explosion of use cases because people go, wow, if you could do that, well, then you could do this and then you could do that. So you know, what we're normally doing is building a, a lightweight center of excellence and then prioritizing use cases and, and kind of running those through um, a, a prioritization model. So the, the skill set needed for a company to work with you doesn't need to be um, anything any kind of really specialized expertise. They just got to know what they're, what they're doing. What about the, the data architecture in-house or the, you know, the, the data lake that companies build? Is there, <laughs> is, is there, is there sort of a sort of baseline requirement for yeah. how organized data needs to be to start? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to trivialize, you know, data challenges. We all know that, um, you know, the creating data pipelines is complex. Um, but because of the way we've architected the solution, um, understanding from the get-go that we're going to have to be consuming you know, data from multiple different sources in multiple different formats. Remember all the way back to the R&D project that we ran, the, the fundamental thesis was the data is coming from somewhere else. It's not in Connecticut. Um, so, you know, we've you know, obviously built, um, you know, integrations uh, with most of the major technology providers in terms of, of data warehousing technologies and streaming data capabilities to make it really easy for customers to do that. And in fact, we bought, we built, sorry, not bought, um, we built, uh, you know, a suite of tools that, that make it really easy for organizations to actually automate the ingestion process. So without trivializing it, because there are, you know, challenges, but, you know, to give you a great example, if, if we do a POC with a customer, you know, I was asking somebody, uh, you know, somebody asked me about this recently and said, you know, what's it like, is it a one month or six month exercise? Our POCs normally take a week. Um, we, we flew a guy into, uh, I won't mention the name of the country because it's, it's, uh, it's not fair to uh, the customer, um, but it was a very large uh, telco. Um, we flew one of our engineers, um, he landed on a Monday, he, he did the setup on the Monday, Tuesday, ran the POC on the Wednesday, Thursday, flew out on the Friday. Um, so, you know, if that's any insight into, you know, how relatively easy it is to do, 
uh, certainly that was a POC environment, not a full production environment. But uh, you know, we've tried to make it a really modern, frictionless technology to bring into your org. Right. For, for, for listeners who are wondering or trying to rack their brains, by the way, it's proof of concept, not, oh, sorry. not point of contact I, or <laughs> proof of concept. Yes. As, as a young company, um, you know, we, we, we kind of make these bold statements about it being able to solve the challenges of things like 5G propagation models. And companies who know that this is an almost impossible problem to solve, they want to see us prove it. So, uh, for one telco, we actually ran the POC three times uh, because they couldn't believe the results. It was, uh, it was astounding to them. Wow. Hi there, Michael here. If you're a startup or a large business, I bet that many of your decisions are frozen. COVID-19 has not only kept us confined at home, but has paralyzed planning because there's so much uncertainty about the economic climate and the business environment. Of course, this uncertainty is deep, and our sense of it is magnified by our fears. But in truth, businesses always operate with uncertainty. One of the specialties that Marco and I have developed over the years is combining data-driven economic analysis with robust scenario analysis. If your business is frozen in place right now because the uncertainty is daunting, please contact us. We'd love to work with you, help you cut through the noise, understand the uncertainties, and help you develop strategies that are robust to multiple scenarios. Send us an email at strategygarage at m4edge.com. That's strategygarage, one word, at m, the number four, edge.com. And we'll start a conversation quickly to help you start moving. And hey, stay safe. And so once again, our listeners cannot see it, but uh, I'm nodding in approval at, as Paul describes the speed of implementation of these solutions. But also I wanted to go back to emphasize something you were saying earlier, Paul, which is you're describing Kinetic as a powerful platform, which then also allows your customers to build additional applications, additional solutions, and to start solving multiple problems. So it's not just an issue of identifying one pain point and providing the solution you bring on board the platform and then with the platform you you yourself and the customer can learn as to address new problems 100 percent. i'll give you an example i was in new york just two weeks ago uh, met <clears throat> with an executive who owns data and analytics for one of the world's top five banks and he said that, you know, the, the interesting thing in financial services, because of the volume of data and, and challenges in their world with legacy technology, et cetera, they live in the world of batch processing still. Um, and many things like, for example, risk, um, which is a key element in, you know, a highly regulated environment is managed as a batch process. It runs overnight on a separate data science platform. And we'll talk about that a little later because I know you and I have that conversation yet to, ha uh, yet to uh, have during this conversation. But um, what we're able to do with them is bring together all of the events that are occurring in the market. So all the trading events, all the historic trading data and run their risk models in real time. In fact, we're running those risk models every 15 seconds. So what they're creating now is in, in essentially a high-speed fabric. So Kinetica is being deployed as a high-speed fabric in the bank and any process or workload that they want to bring into this real-time or near real-time world 
Kinetica is going to act as the speed layer for. So, you know, that's, you know, and, and it's this understanding, you know, as, as you guys quite rightly pointed out, people have data everywhere. It's all over the place. Some of it's in the cloud, some of it's on-prem, some of it's in data lakes and data warehouses and data swamps and, and transactional databases and, and trading data and events coming in. It's, it's, it's how you actually bring that into a, a speed layer to actually drive the business outcomes that they need. So on this note, you guys have actually written an entire white paper on business intelligence meets artificial intelligence. And as I warned <laughs> you at the beginning, this is, a, this is one of the issues that are closest to, to my heart. Why don't you give us your view? So as if we've written an entire paper on this, what's the issue? Why is it, is it important? How do we address it? Well, I mean, this, this example of risk is a, is a great example because um, what the banks did is they would take their transactional data, the event data of the day, and it really only a subset of the trading data, out of their trading platforms and put it into their data science platform to run as a batch process overnight. If you think of any of the kinds of modern use cases that we're talking about, whether it's things like real-time risk, AML or fraud, whether it's around threat detection from either a, a cyber or physical perspective, whether it's autonomous vehicles, you need to be able to bring the business data and the event data. So not just business data, but event data and the data science together. You have to, um, you know, the, everybody talks about operationalizing AI and ML. The only way you operationalize AI and ML is, is that the, 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 the data science platform isn't a separate thing to, to the, the, the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's really another great dimension of what Kinetica is able to do is, is this ability to actually bring the data science platform and the, the business platform together. Because if you're gonna do things like dynamic supply chain management, where you automate the supply chain for one of the world's biggest retailers, if you're gonna do things like uh, you know, catastrophic event analysis and, and build uh, predictive models associated with that, if you're going to run real-time risk, you need to bring those things together. So the whole concept of data science being a separate discipline um, is nonsensical if we're going to bring um, the power of AI and ML to businesses the way we want to, to, you know, help, you know, um, with healthcare, help make smart grid a reality, <laughs> as an example, um, or, you know, reduce risk um, in the banking system. Um, that's where, where it really comes together. So I'd go way beyond bringing BI and AI together. This is, this is really about you know, making, um, you know, data science and, and uh, the, whole, the whole construct of AI and ML um, and embedded process within the business, whatever that business happens to be. I want to uh, begin to transition into the, um, into the philosophical se uh, segment of our show here. <laughs> I thought this was all philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> we live in the, we live in the uh, you know, in the clouds here. So uh, yeah, no, not I'm the cloud, but the cloud. No. I mean, so, the cool thing about what we've been talking about, just to be clear, is that we're not talking about what we might be able to do. This is stuff we're doing. And, right. and that's the cool thing about it is that, you know, we're all talk, we all love to talk about the theoretical, but, you know, actually making these things a reality is, is what we're loving at the moment. Um, yeah. Having a lot yeah. of fun doing it. So we're, we're talking in an age now where you can't click on a website without accepting cookies. We're, we're in the, uh, you know, G GPDR age. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about that. Who, who should own 
data. If an enterprise collects data from its B2B customers or its B2C customers, what, what's the right way to think about data rights? Wow. Now, now we're getting topical. I thought you said we weren't going to get too topical. <laughs> okay. This is, I might have to need, I might need my safe word here, but let's see how we go. <laughs> um, yeah, here, here's the interesting thing. I mean, I think we'd all broadly agree that our data is our data. Um, and we should own our data and we should be able to control uh, our data destiny and protect our data. There is absolutely no, I mean, unless you guys violently disagree and I'd be surprised if you did. No. But let's compare that, which I think if, if you know, if all your listeners and we could see them, you know, you'd see lots of people nodding going, yeah, too, right, yeah, protect my data. So then let's look at what human behavior is. And when, you know, with the advent of GDPR, um, we all got those hundreds of, of communications with various vendors and entities saying, you know, here's our policy and you need to read our policy and decide whether, how you want us to use their data. And, and we all read it all carefully. And, and you know, I haven't met a person yet who read, <laughs> read every one of those. And I have very strong views about my data and how it's used. In fact, you know, probably stronger than most. If you looked at the bell-shaped distribution curve, I'd be out there in the kind of far end. I didn't read any of them. So like there's what we say and what we do as humans. And the reason why we do that is that in our minds, we actually value the utility of the service that whoever that was that sent us that note more than we value our data. You don't think it's, it's that we can't be bothered to read it or we don't understand well, it because it's in legalese sometimes or, well, well, let me, let me ask it this way. When you, when you say you're on the, on the far end of the bell curve, what does that really mean for you? Um, you know, I, I, I'm passionate about my privacy. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's essentially, you know, some people are moderately, you know, focused on that, but I'm fairly passionate about my privacy, my family and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, my own life. Um, but that said, I didn't read any of them and I haven't found anybody, you know, I, I must say, you know, the, the data set is relatively small, so I can't say it's a scientific sample of, of data, but I haven't met anybody yet who told me, oh, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we shut down all those services. You know, we wouldn't accept their, you know, we, we read their privacy policies. We didn't accept it, so we shut it all off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, haven't met any, <laughs> I haven't met anybody who said that yet. So it's an interesting conundrum um, where, you know, we absolutely have the right to have our data, data protected and our privacy protected. We should own our data and yeah. we should control its destiny. Um, but most of us have waived our rights. But yeah. let me jump in with just one quick consideration here, which is uh, the, because I'm very close to, to the extreme you are on, Paul. I also ignore all those uh, warnings and I don't read anything. But, but I think there is something going on, which is the following. It's not just that people like us are fundamentally lazy and so we don't feel like reading this stuff. <laughs> it's partly that we might not understand the, the risks of our data being used in a, yeah non-kosher way. Yeah. It's partly that we see the value that is provided to us, but it, it's also fundamentally because uh, I have no way of monetizing my data yeah. as a single data point. My data yeah. has value the moment that it is aggregated yeah. with a lot of other data. Yeah. So there's an issue of where the value is created. So I think it's not uh, it's behavioral, but it's not irrational, what you're describing. Yeah, no, no it's, it's true. And I understand why, um, the, uh, because it's hard for an individual to mon monetize their individual data. I, I totally get that. And, and what most you know, people, I'm not saying everybody, but many people go is, listen, 
you know, I get incredible benefit of being able to store my photographs or share information about my life from this platform. And therefore I'm happy, you know, in return to getting that service for free because you get that service for free to give away my data. And, and, you know, it's the utility, if you like, of the service that, um, that people find compelling. Uh, it doesn't, you know, forgive the way some of that data has been used because the way some of that data has been used, as we well know, is outrageous. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a tricky, it's a, it's a really tricky one. That's one I'm, I'm giving a lot of thought to. So uh, this notion, if, if we move away from privacy a little bit to the value yep. of the data, which is where yep. Marco is going, uh, is there something, you know, there's a, there are public goods that derive from the, from the data. Mm -hmm. Public health, as you mentioned, um, mm -hmm. all of the potential benefits from an autonomous driving world, mm -hmm. and all of the reduced traffic accidents, yep. for example. Is there a different way that governments should be leveraging data um, that, that's, you know, something that's not being done now? Is there something that could be done with the aggregate value of data as a societal good? Um, I, I think governments are in exactly the same place as businesses in that, you know, the, the, the government, um, you know, apart from, uh, from, from, you know, uh, making decisions about the economy and the protection of borders and all the rest of it, uh, provides a huge number of services for its citizens. And, you know, if you think about a, a country the size of the USA, you know, 320, 330 million people, for government to be far more effective in the services that it delivers, it needs to be able to leverage data far more effectively, you know, in terms of, of healthcare, in terms of protection of public infrastructure, in terms of, of um, you know, service provision and, and the like. And, and, you know, I don't think governments have gotten on to the value of the data that they own and control um, as well as some companies have. And, uh, you know, I think there's a, a huge opportunity for governments all around the world um, to look at data um, in a different way. It was Angela Merkel who actually said, uh, uh, not at the, the, the World Economic Forum this year, but last year, that Germany needs to shift from being a manufacturing-driven economy to being a data-driven economy. And it was, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it was, a, it was, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how that evolves from, you know, a statement into policy, but, uh, you know, it was a pretty bold statement from, you know, the, the leader of one of the world's great manufacturing economies. Right. And there is an additional aspect to this, where I would be very interested in hearing your view, Paul, which is, uh, there's a lot of concern that the protectionism we have seen spreading around the world will also spread to the data and internet aspects. So a lot of concern that we will see an increased segmentation of the internet along regional or national lines. A number of countries which are insisting that specific sets of data be at least warehoused within international borders. Is this something we should be worried about in terms of the potential negation of efficiency and benefits or are the concerns overblown yeah i you know I, I i personally don't see those things as healthy i mean you look at um somewhere like china where you know that's taken to its extreme um I, you know i i don't see that's healthy from either a national or international sense um if we think about the the shifting nature of of trade um, the evolution of, of you know, blockchain and, and the implications for real-time settlements, um, the, the protection of our borders internationally with still growing terror threats, 
um, you know, this pandemic that we're in the midst of will not be the last. There'll be many more. So, so the more transparent in, in with appropriate controls and protections um, and, and porous um, the, the sharing of data is between countries, the better. Um, I, I think closing borders from a data perspective is unhealthy, both at an individual population level, as we're seeing in China, um, and uh, at an international level. Usually, at, uh, as we wrap up these interviews, it's it, we have a you know look into the future twenty years question. It's usually my question, but Marco's got a very specific one that that he came up with. So I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to Marco for for this one. Uh, just I once, have... maybe. Just once. <laughs> you haven't asked you... me about my favorite topic yet. Do I get yeah. to volunteer a topic? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Before <laughs> before we go there, what's your favorite topic? Future work. Um, <laughs> That's I, I exactly where I was going to go. Oh, cool! Exactly where I, 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 okay, I was going go. to go. <laughs> hit me with hit me with your question because, uh, yeah, because... This is, this is a favorite topic. Because I've actually noticed, Paul, that it was, I think, two years ago that you wrote a blog titled, Should We Fear the Future of Work? And I think at the time, your answer was, we shouldn't fear it, but we should prepare for it. And now, as uh, your company, Kinetica, accelerates the adoption of new technologies and enterprises, what is your view on the future of work today? Tell us uh, anything... Feel free to answer it any way you want for as long as you want. Oh, cool. Awesome. Okay, great. I've got a platform now. How long have you guys got? <laughs> till, till the future. Maybe you're great. Maybe you guys will need your safe word. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've done a, a couple of things recently because talk, talk is cheap. So I wanted to get more engaged in some of these topics. So um, I, I, I sit um, in a policy advisory group with the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Um, and, and there are a number of things that that, um, that, that group is looking at but, um, uh, within the World Economic Forum. But, but one of those is the impact of technology, AI, automation, robotics on um, the future of work. Um, the, the other thing that I've done is actually gone to the other end, which is to, to join the board of a Future Thinking High School, which is... Um, uh, a school that's uh, that's built around the principles of uh, project-based learning and design thinking, um, and and it's really about educating the next generation of workers, not for the kind of post-industrial revolution manufacturing era that we were in, which is the way most schools educate our kids, but for this modern, um, disruptive, automated future that we're all you know actually living in today. Um, and so there's a reason why I did that, and that is that um, there is no doubt that automation, AI, robotics um, will replace the work that was done by humans, um, you know, in, in many different roles. Take driving as an example. I think there are 10 million um, people who derive their primary income from a role um, that, that is about transforming, that transporting people or equipment or goods or whatever the case may be. There's a point in time those jobs won't exist anymore. Um, so there's no doubt going to be great societal dislocation. Um, uh, but what I would say is if, if we say that we're in the fourth industrial revolution, if every time that machines replaced work that humans used to do and those humans lost those jobs in aggregate, we'd probably have 60 or 70% unemployment today. Um, we don't. And the reason is that those technologies created new forms of work. 
Um, but what happened was those, uh, those, those forms of work that were, were disrupted weren't replaced and we didn't take a, a strategic approach to um, retraining those, those workers that may have been from the mining industry, the coal mining industry, and in the future will be from, you know, from the transport industry. So my views are that um, I, I don't think we should fear uh, the future of work driven by technology, but what we should as individuals, as companies and as societies do is identify those groups of workers, so those classes of work that are at high risk and be really proactive in, in how we get out there and um, cross skill, upskill, train and enable them for the new forms of work that they'll be required to do uh, and not leave those people behind. I think that's our responsibility. I think we're single, thinking that we're going to end up with massive unemployment, which, by the way, some people have argued, including Mr. Gates. Um, I don't think that's going to happen because the past shows us it didn't happen. New forms of work were created, but we need to make sure that those people transition in that journey and we don't leave them behind. As we've seen in the US with a lot of manufacturing jobs and a lot of mining jobs where you know, big parts of the community were left behind. You know, I completely agree with you, and both on the long-term outlook for jobs, so I don't see mass unemployment on the horizon, also on the priority of helping out the categories of workers which will be impacted first. But to play devil's advocate and anticipating what uh, Michael would point out, uh, the counter-argument the counter-argument is that uh, we are now seeing progress on the front of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, which is uh, encroaching further and further into the abilities that humans have of performing certain tasks. So I'm curious, uh, as, uh, as you state your optimism that there will still be more and new jobs that humans can do, where do you think our comparative advantage as humans will lie? Is it going to be increasingly on things like creativity, ability to problem solve, to think outside the box? Is it going to be the emotional intelligence and interpersonal relationships? Is it going to be the dexterity which robots will take several years to develop? Um, the answer is yes to all of the above. That's why this, this whole construct around this, this school that I joined the, the board of was so important because it's around the whole construct of design thinking um, and disruptive thinking. Um, you know, machines, even the smartest machines aren't built, you know, to, to disrupt, they're built to execute um, and problem solve. Um, and, you know, I've seen, I've even, you know, seen societies that were very much structured along the lines of executing and problem solving that actually created a problem for themselves by not um, introducing disruptive thinking and, uh, and, and innovation. And, and you know, uh, um, they've had to essentially import people from overseas to, to help solve that problem. Uh, I won't say who because I don't want to offend anybody, but it's, 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 it's something that I witnessed firsthand because I lived there for many years. So you know, the, the reality is that this, this kind of creativity and innovation that's, that's very inherent in in um, you know, in in humans um, is going to be a big factor moving forward, um, and and also you know the the you know the the growing and evolving role of the knowledge worker. Um, I, I don't see that going away. I actually see these platforms actually creating um, inputs for you know knowledge workers to make more informed decisions and and help guide and and direct companies more effectively. I'm I'm going to be. I'm going to exercise massive self-restraint here and not, <laughs> not jump in. I have, I have a different opinion, but 
I actually want to get to the question I thought Marco was going to ask, which is a 20 year question. I, 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 I will follow up with you off, offline, I think, because I, I have a slightly different take. Um, Maybe we'll all be podcasters in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm being provocative. That's gonna... dystopian. I mean, my <laughs> God. <laughs> but I was bleak. Um, Marco, I'm, a, I'm, 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 an, I'm an optimist, though, man. So you just have to. Be, I know it's two to one. So I figure, you know, it's, yeah. some of it is just self-preservation. So, um, Marco, notice in your in your bio that uh, for over 20 years, this is our 20 year question. You've actually been involved with the John McLean Foundation, mm-hmm. and so instead of uh, looking looking forward 20 years and future of work and utopia or dystopia, tell us about the John McLean Foundation. Um, tell us about the lessons that it, it holds for us. Yeah, really interesting story. Um, you know, I would encourage everybody to uh, to jump on YouTube and and just uh, Google John McLean. Um, there was a 60 minute story on John. Uh, he was a young athlete um, uh, with a budding professional career who got uh, run over by a semi trailer and left for dead. Um, spent uh, uh, you know a couple of harrowing nights where he was expected to die and um, and survived. Uh, you know, unexpectedly survived. That uh, came out of that profoundly paraplegic. Um, it was about wow, 27, 28 years ago. Um, and, uh, and John being the character that he is, uh, you know, rose above that and, and became quite a famous athlete. He's in, inducted into the Ironman hall of fame. He was the first wheelchair athlete to complete, uh, the uh, Hawaiian Ironman. And mm. since then he's, he's done multiple crossings of the English channel. As a matter of fact, I think he's the only athlete full stop who's done the Hawaiian Ironman and swum the English channel. I think that's still wow. the case. Wow. And, you know, he's been in the Olympics, the Paralympics and done all sorts of amazing things. But what John decided very early is that, um, you know, this concept of, of disability is, is a bad concept. Um, and that what, uh, what we need to focus on is, is, you know, possibilities. Um, and uh, he created a foundation that was targeted at helping kids uh, in wheelchairs. Um, that's what the John McLean Foundation is, is all about. And it's all about, you know, uh, creating a platform for kids uh, who are in wheelchairs to, to reach their dreams or ambitions, whether they're sporting ambitions or educational ambitions or, or access and mobility or quality of life ambitions. Uh, so I've had the, the, the privilege and benefit of being on the foundation's board for many years and now being an advisor. Um, the thing that's fascinating about John's story is that 27 years later, um, he met uh, somebody who introduced him to a pretty radical therapy, therapy that was ultimately around resynapsing. John was uh, not a fully, uh, he was what's called an incomplete paraplegic. Um, and uh, he still had some partial function. And uh, through this, uh, this uh, technique of resynapsing, he was able to um, regain some control over his limbs and is now walking again. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a very cool story. Um, so I'm very, I'm very honored that Johnny's a friend of mine and uh, it's been a valuable life lesson in coming, uh, you know, together with John and leveraging technology, in fact, to help many of these young kids. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a great example of not just, you know, personal perseverance, but um, how technology can really change people's lives. Yeah, it's yeah. an inspirational way of looking at the future of work with an optimistic take on what humans can do. So, yeah, Johnny's tagline is only possibilities. And, and that's kind of what I've tried to take into uh, 
into the rest of my life is, you know, and hence my op optimistic view of the future of work. And even in the, uh, in the, the context of our current crisis, I'm very optimistic about uh, our abilities uh, to, uh, to come through that and, uh, and learn valuable lessons. Fantastic. All right. That's a great place to, to stop. So thank you, Paul. Um, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks for taking the time and uh, good luck with the future growth of Connecticut. Oh, thank you so much. Thank I really, so really much, enjoyed Paul. the conversation. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Take fantastic. Care. Thank you. Thanks to the folks over at Podblade for editing this episode. Podblade is an affordable podcast editing service focused on making podcasting more accessible by offering all-in-one podcast editing, starting at just $20 per episode. We learned the hard way that audio editing is one of the most time-consuming parts of the podcasting process. That's why we're now using Podblade to edit our shows. Check them out at podblade.com. That's podblade.com. And tell them M4Edge sent you.